0: you are listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit redeemersgf.com. This morning, we're continuing in our series on the one another's of Scripture today. We'll be back in the Gospel of John next week. Greg will be continuing our series in that. But last week, we talked about loving each other. And how our Christian love for each other is based on God's love for us. But today we're going to talk about one way to contextualize love in community. So our text today follows Romans 14, which deals with matters of conscience and not judging each other or causing one another to stumble because of varying convictions. So now we get to see Paul talking about why we pursue peace and care for each other in these ways. And we get to our next one another. So turn with me to Romans 15 we in the first seven verses there. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and read the text, and then we'll pray and work through this bit by bit and see what the Lord has for us. Let us uh, let me read this text first all the way through, and then we'll go from there. Romans 15, 1 through 7 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, and that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that, you, that together you may with one voice glorify the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the for the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So our, the, sermon, the sermon title for today is Welcome One Another, and there's four divisions. The first is our motivation, which is selfless sacrificial service, that's in verses 1 through 2. The second point is our example, Jesus and Scripture, that's in verses 3 and 4. The third point is our goal, which is peace and unity, which is in verses 5 and 6. And the last point is our command, which is harmony, in verse 7. So again, our motivation, verses 1 through 2, our example, 3 and 4, our goal, 5 and 6, and our command, in verse 7. So here we go. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. We've got plenty to do. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the gentle commands. We praise you for the confidence that we have in it. We praise you that you accomplish your work through your word. And so we ask that you would accomplish a work in us today, that you would bring us joy and peace as we work through this text to welcome one another, to embrace one another, to encourage one another, and to be unified for your sake, for your glory. So I pray that this, that this, word, that this word today would unify us and would be glorifying to you and also for our good. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so the first point here is our motivation, which is selfless, sacrificial service in verses 1 through 2. So it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. So the first point here, the verse, first half of verse 1 says, We who are strong have an obligation. So Paul is working from the specific examples of food in in Romans 14, the, the previous chapter, there's this idea of people were selling meat that was used in pagan sacrifices, and some Christians felt fine to eat that. Some Christians kind of balked at it and weren't comfortable because they felt that it was wrong to eat the meat that was uh, used in pagan rituals. But chapter 14 provides instructions on how these believers are, to, are supposed to act toward each other. Now in chapter 15, he's expanding that out, not just about food, but he's expanding it out to general principles for all Christian relationships. How should Christians act and toward each other? How should believers act toward each other? So when he says strong and weak, he's talking about strong in faith or weak in faith. And Paul's use of we, the word we, the first person plural, means that he's considering himself one of the strong. The second half of the verse says to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. This, this idea of an obligation is to bear with the weak, not just that it would be nice if we would, but that we need to bear with the weaker brother. Our goal is to support and help the weaker brother instead of criticizing them. And what he's concerned with here, the point here is that he's wanting to get to the stronger brother's attitude, that they should care for their weaker brothers rather than doing what they prefer. It's really reminiscent of Matthew eight seventeen, which is actually a quote of the book of Isaiah, a verse in Isaiah, where it t- says that Jesus takes our illnesses and bears our diseases. That's the verb that's used, that's the quote, that's the context that's kind of being hinted at. And it's also the verb or which is used for carrying the cross, which means either physically carrying the cross, bearing the cross, Jesus bearing the cross in John 19, 17, Or spiritually bearing the cross, which is talking about taking up your cross and following Jesus like we see in Luke 14. That's the same verb, same exact context. So we're talking about bearing with one another, bearing the cross. The point is that the strong should carry the weak. I'll quote Leon Morris here, a great scholar. He says, we are never to do what pleases us regardless of its effects on others. Consideration for weaker Christians takes precedence over what we ourselves would like to. To do. So those who work for their own, we we see this principle at work. We're talking about this idea, but if if you work for your own self interest, you turn that principle on its head. That you want others to bear with you, but they don't. You don't want them to bear with anybody else. The point is the attitude. So what is your attitude here? What is? Why did you? What did you come into this building with as your attitude? Did you come into here expecting people to cater to you? Do you commune with fellow believers thinking they should agree with you or just not say anything at all? What's your attitude toward your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you're stronger in your faith, if you can engage culture and press boundaries that others are wary of, and if you're doing it for the glory of God, then you need to be exceedingly careful not to grieve your weaker brothers and sisters. Make sure you lay down your preferences and put others' convictions ahead of your own. Serve them. Bear with them in that way. The instruction here is toward those who are stronger in faith, but the weaker ones don't get a pass either. Paul refers to their weaker consciences as weakness, as failings. His point is that you don't get to lord your conscience over your stronger brothers and sisters and demand that they refrain from everything that might ruffle your feathers. So is your attitude, whether you're weaker or stronger, is your attitude about serving other people? Are you motivated to die to yourself, or are you wanting others to do that for you? Lest I ruffle feathers this early, let's move on to verse 2. Let us please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. The idea of pleasing neighbors, that's believers in this case, that's the context. We're talking about pleasing our fellow believers, honoring them. And it's for their good. This means helping them grow in the faith, benefiting them. There's no selfishness here, strong or weak. This is a selfless helping. There's also no fear of man here. We please them for their benefit. We don't enable them to hold positions that are really harmful in the long run. We don't let the weak control the church. But the Christian life is focused on strengthening others. So the strong must respect the weak and work toward their benefit. That's the point that Paul is making here. If we're going to draw an analogy, if we're going to kind of get an example here from Scripture, consider the difference between Christ and the Pharisees here. You see, the Pharisees are self-righteous throughout Scripture. They're accomplished Bible scholars, and they know it. They debate endlessly about various things. We see this on several occasions when they try to trap Jesus in something. In their teachings, they heap additional laws and regulations and burdens onto their followers. They add to the gospel. They add to the commandments of Scripture. But they're self-serving. They push others down the ladder so they can stay on top. That's what the Pharisees do again and again. But Jesus shares his righteousness with his followers. He's the living, breathing word of God. He settles debates and outsmarts the Pharisees and confuses and frustrates them because he's preaching a different, a better ethic than what they have. In his teachings, he points out the weightiness of the law, but also proclaims the gospel, the good news, that he has fulfilled it, and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So consider that Jesus is more free than any of us. Who, who's more confident and more free and stronger than Jesus? Nobody. And yet he was also more careful to bear with the weaknesses of others than anybody else. So it kind of raises the question, how do you strengthen someone who's weak? How do you, how do, you do this? And so I, I was kind of thinking through this, and there's a profession that does this. A, how does a physical therapist work with someone who's weak? If you've ever been to a physical therapist, you, you kind of know this, but a physical therapist doesn't berate somebody. They don't make fun of the, their patients. They don't avoid them. They don't show off how strong they are in front of their patients. Physical therapists are always athletic, and they can pretty much do anything, but they meet their patient where they are, and they work within their limitations. They understand the weakness, and they teach them exercises that will make them stronger. They focus on the weak areas, and they model strength in proper form and work alongside them. Then they provide a plan for growing stronger so they won't be weak anymore. That's what a physical therapist does for their patients. This is also what we do in discipleship. If someone is weak in their conscience, we don't berate them or make fun of them. We don't avoid them or show off how strong we are by comparison. We may be able to handle just about anything, but we meet our weaker brothers and sisters where they are and work within their limitations. We understand their weakness and we teach them in ways that will help them strengthen their faith. We focus on the weaknesses and model what strength and proper form is. We work alongside them. And then we provide suggestions for growing stronger so that they'll, be no, they'll no longer be weak. That is what we do in discipleship. That's how we develop strength in our weaker brothers. So Christian, are you, are you motivated to serve? Is, is your heart toward God's people, toward service? Does this word from the Lord encourage you to sacrifice a little of your freedom so that you may support a weaker brother or sister? I hope it does. I hope that Redeemer will be known for celebrating our freedoms in Christ, but also quickly and easily laying them down when it's beneficial and helps make disciples. Often you'll find as a stronger brother or sister that you benefit from from that discipline as well. I have no problem drinking alcohol. I have no problem with it at all, as long as it's in moderation. Had lots of great conversations over a beer with many of you guys. But I haven't had a beer in the last several years because I've committed to serve alongside our brothers and sisters at the Missouri Baptist Convention. I've also attended Baptist seminaries who heavily invested in me, but they required that I not drink as a student. To that I say, no problem. It's easy for me to lay that freedom down. It's not even a second thought. I refrain from alcohol because I want to defer to my weaker brothers and sisters in the faith. Is refraining from alcohol a biblical regulation? I don't think so. I don't don't agree with that regulation. But I'd much rather err on the side of being selfless and sacrificial and have the honor of learning from and leading alongside my weaker brothers and sisters rather than selfishly scoffing at them and missing out on those joys. That'd be foolish of me. So lest I begin to think more highly of myself than I ought, let's move on to the second point that Jesus and Scripture are our examples in verses 3 to 4. So our motivation then in verses 1 through 2 should be selfless, sacrificial service. Let's look to our example, Jesus and Scripture. Verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. We see that Christ didn't please himself, but bore reproach so Jesus is our example here that's an example so Paul shifts straight into Jesus being his example he didn't please himself this is an aorist meaning that all of his earthly life is viewed as a whole here it's not just in the past but it's viewed as a whole so it's saying Jesus in his whole life was is our example he didn't put his interests ahead of others he didn't defend his rights but he put the will of God first in his life in his ministry And the second half of verse 3 references Psalm 69 here. It's a reference, a quote from Psalm 69. And uh, just to give you the context of that, in this psalm, there's a righteous sufferer who's been forsaken by his friends and attacked by his enemies. In context in Romans, Jesus is talking directly to God. Paul is quoting this, saying that Jesus is speaking directly back to God. We would expect this reference to highlight Jesus' devotion to humans, but it's not. His devotion is toward the Lord. The idea is that Christ suffered for the sake of God's honor. A way to think through this, one of, a, one of my favorite movies um, as of late has been the, the new version of True Grit that came out in 2010. And one of the characters is Labeef. If you haven't seen it, one of the characters is Labeef. He's a lawman. He's a Texas Ranger. And he's the running comedy relief throughout the movie. He kind of has these funny, um, you know, tongue-in-cheek kind of ways he addresses things and he, that he's addressed. He's ridiculed for the way that he dresses. He's ridiculed for his stories. He's ridiculed for a lot of different things. And he handles it moderately well until the crusty old marshal, Rooster Cogburn, makes fun of his beloved Texas Rangers. And that's the bridge too far. It's the one thing he doesn't stand for. And his sensitivity to that leads to other jokes as well. But he suffered for the sake of the Texas Rangers, for their honor. He was made fun of for the honor of the Texas Rangers. And now, obviously, Labeef isn't Jesus. And, of course, Texas is not God. It's the promised land. But that's neither here nor there. But you get the point. Jesus is bearing the reproaches of God's enemies. there's some kind of possible, there's two possible interpretations here. There's maybe a commentary of sorts on Romans 14, 15, which says that the strong are not to destroy the weak, meaning that the strong should forsake certain foods since Christ was willing to suffer for God's honor. Or it may mean that the weaker Roman Christians are unfairly judging the strong and causing them to suffer. Either way, either way. The point is that Paul is saying... In light of what Jesus has done, can the strong insist on their on eating their meat and the weak keep condemning them? Can we, can, can, in light of what Christ has done for his people, for the church, can we continue to justify this nastiness happening between Christians? And the clear answer is absolutely not. What Paul is doing, he's keeping Jesus as the backdrop for these Christians' actions. There's a constant pressure for them to think about whether their behavior is Christ-like or not. So I'll put the question to you this morning. Is Christ your standard? Is he the example that you follow? It's very popular now to listen to sermons and podcasts and follow pastors or authors from all over the United States or even the world. And and, and many of those are godly men and uh, serve faithfully in their context. But they are not the standard. They're not Jesus. They follow Jesus. They point to Jesus. If they do it right, they're proclaiming Christ. But they're not Jesus. They're not the standard. So before you follow in the footsteps of an author or a blogger or a pastor, make sure you're following Jesus first and foremost. And before you quote books or articles, make sure you're quoting scripture, which is our other example. We'll see it in verse 4 here. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. The first half of the verse here says, whatever was written in former days was for our instruction. This is kind of a shorthand way of referring to the entire Old Testament. It was for the benefit of the original audiences and also for Paul and his readers. So the Old Testament not only was relevant in its original context to its original audience, but we also see that it's for Paul and for his readers, both Jews and Gentiles, and by, by way of analogy, also us today. The Old Testament is for us as Christians today, as God's people. It hasn't stopped being relevant. It's for our instruction. That means that we're to learn from them. We're to learn from the Old Testament. So we see the experiences of Christ, which we see foreshadowed in the Old Testament, are an example of how we're to live. We see, that him, we see his person and his work hinted at, referred to, explained in the Old Testament. And we're to understand that and be, um, be encouraged by that. It's for our instruction as well. And the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Christ, but that doesn't mean that it's useless to us. In the Old Testament, we understand salvation history. We understand our history as God's people. We understand the foundations of a biblical worldview. And Consider that the New Testament writers only had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. They were writing it. But they didn't create a new ethic or a way of thinking. They simply commented on the Old Testament and brought it into a current context. They simply saw Jesus as fulfilling the Old Testament, and they wrote on how we're to live in light of him. So the second half of the verse four says, through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There's two ways we have hope, endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures here. So the first one is endurance. We see in Romans 5, 3 through 5, that endurance results in hope. I'll quote it here. It says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. So we see that endurance results in hope. And then we have the encouragement of the scriptures. The sense of the Greek here is that we receive strength and encouragement from the scriptures in order to honor the Lord with our lives. The purpose is that there's a henna clause there, that or so that, through the scriptures we might have hope. The point is that when we read the Old Testament, we should be filled with hope. How? Like The Old Testament is strange. It's got a lot of different contexts. A lot of different things are going on in the Old Testament. How is the Old Testament encouraging to us? How should we be filled with hope when we read the Old Testament? Well, we read accounts of people who sin spectacularly but who serve God faithfully and they're redeemed by the Lord like Moses or David. We read accounts of those who rebel against and reject the Lord, who are judged by him like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis or Pharaoh in Exodus. But through reading the Old Testament, we can know that the Lord is faithful, even even when we're not. We see Israel failing again and again, but God maintains his hesed, his faithful covenant love toward his people. And that's what gives us hope. And we can know the foundations of our faith. I can't help but think that a lot of the tension and discouragement in the American church over the last couple of years is due in part um, to our lack of Bible reading. And I would say especially the Old Testament. And that may sound very strange, but let's work it out here. So many many misinterpretations of the New Testament and so many doctrinal mistakes stem from ignoring or being embarrassed by what's in the Old Testament. I think if we were to commit to reading Scripture and understanding the big picture of what God is saying in Scripture, we would find great encouragement. We would find a really big God who is holy and jealous and powerful and faithful and loving and gracious. We would find tons of examples of God's faithfulness and human brokenness. It would comfort us to see that everything that dismays us now is just a continuation of what's happened for millennia. Racial tensions, political tensions, sexual perversion, insanity masquerading as truth. All of those things are not new. There's nothing new under the sun. So Christian, be encouraged in the scriptures. Take heart the encouragement of the Lord to be strong and courageous and do not be dismayed. Be encouraged that Jesus is who the scriptures say he is. So in following the examples of Jesus in scripture, we should live in such a way that the weaker among us are not shamed, but rather supported and cherished. Our hope should be anchored in Jesus. He's the one who suffered for the glory of God and who was raised from the dead. He also has promised that we will suffer and that we will follow him in his resurrection and live with him forever. So our hope should be anchored in the person and work of Christ. But also our endurance and encouragement should be anchored in scripture. And I'll just say this, if you're working through the Bible reading plan or if you're just kind of generally frustrated, um, if studying the Bible is frustrating or if it weakens your faith or it causes you to be discouraged, you're doing it wrong. And come find somebody to help you learn how to read the Bible. I'll tell, I'll help you. We just finished about how to read the Bible class, how to study the Bible class. We'll teach it again, I'm sure, soon. But get to know how to read the Bible correctly. If it's discouraging to you, if it's off-putting to you, then you're doing it wrong. That's all I'll say. So in welcoming one another, we see that our motivation is selfless. Sacrificial service in verses 1 through 2. We see, we just saw that our example is Jesus in Scripture in verses 3 through 4. Let's talk about our goal now, which is peace and unity in verses 5 and 6. Scripture says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 5 says, The God of endurance, and encouragement, grant you to live in harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. We see that God is the source of endurance and encouragement. This this doesn't come from within us. It's not something we well up within us, endurance and encouragement. We can't manufacture it ourselves. We must trust in the Lord to provide it, and we must rest in him. Over the last few months, as we've transitioned into this building in this new season of ministry, I've been reflecting over the past eight years of ministry. Redeemer's eight and a half years old now. Been thinking about that and how this is a new season for us, a new look at life, a new look at ministry for us. We're kind of growing into this and figuring out what it's what it looks like. But I think this point right here is one of the things I've grown in during that time. When we first planted, I don't think I would have said that I was relying on my own strength. I don't. I don't think I would have. You know, I, I think. Oh yeah, I'm definitely relying on the Lord. You know, He's good, and we're we're all fine here. But as I've, come, as I've become worn out and realized that there's a physical and mental and emotional toll on me as a pastor, I've learned that the Lord is a source of my endurance. And as I've counseled and dealt with discipline situations over the years, and as the gray hair has come in, I've learned that the Lord is my source of encouragement. And I, I love my family, and I have amazing friends, but they are human, and they are not intended to bear that weight. The Lord is the Lord. He is the source of encouragement and endurance and he grants us that we live in harmony. This is not uniformity or having the exact same opinions, but we look back in 14:5 uh, we see that Paul's not trying to get everybody in the church to look the exact same way or think the exact same way. In 14:5 Paul says he's talking to both sides on this weaker and stronger brother. He's saying that both that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one should be fully convinced. So he's okay that there's a difference in the church. He's okay that there's a difference of conviction. He's okay that there's a difference of opinions on this. But here he's calling for a unity of purpose, which is worship, which we'll see in verse 6. This unity is based on the sacrifice of Jesus and the models of his character. So verse 6 says, Together you may with one voice glorify the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is praying for Christian unity here, which only he can give. We can't just fuse ourselves together. We can't just make ourselves and, and strong-arm this together. We have to rely on the Lord. Only the Lord can give that. And It's not unity for the sake of quality control or consistency. This is unity around the purpose of glorifying God. There's so much, so much bickering and distrust and disunity in the church today. There's, there's so much of that. And some of those fights are worth having. So you know, It's, it's okay to stand on truth, and it's okay. Um, we, we shouldn't forsake Scripture and core Christian doctrines for the sake of being nice and keeping everyone happy. We need to be grounded in Scripture in order to know which fights are worth having, though. But we ought not be nasty or disrespectful toward anyone. That ought not be in the Christian church. That doesn't fulfill any Scripture. But insofar as we have Christian unity, we have to be unified. As long as we are Christians, there ought to be a unity there. And when we do have disagreements, we ought to maintain our unity and peace in spite of them. This means we respect each other even though we differ on a few things. There ought not to be disrespect or mocking in the way that we relate. The world should see us disagree and still be able to see love on both sides. We should also resist the urge to want to score points. There's this insidious side to social media where we just want to find that funny meme or really skewer someone who has a dumb position on something. But brothers and sisters, we need to be exceedingly wary of becoming scoffers and mockers. Scripture speaks very clearly on both. The book of Proverbs is a wealth of wisdom on this. We need to see the best in each other, assume the best about each other. We should be cautious and careful in our critiques. We should be generous and gracious with our words. And we need to be on speaking terms after having disagreed. This is very much the world we live in. It's a very vicious, take no prisoners, scorched earth campaign. But Christian, I'll quote quote Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This idea of glorifying God with one voice also means that we worship the Lord alongside each other. We shouldn't be looking around judging people while we're singing or listening to a sermon. And if something is hindering your worship, you need to address it. I'll just say that plainly here. If something is distracting you from worship, but the difference in convictions in this room, if something's distracting you from worshiping the Lord or hearing this sermon you need to address it take time to do that during our response time in a few minutes don't take communion without addressing it because it's 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 it ought not be but pursuing unity means that we see them first as a brother or sister in the faith pursuing unity means that we see the best and we see I see that you are a Christian And that's the first identity that we have. Our first reaction to seeing someone shouldn't be, oh, here comes that disagreement with a pair of legs. But rather, ah, that's my brother or sister. I'm glad to see them. Let's not even think of our differences unless it's necessary or helpful to do so. There's no reason to bring that up unless it's an absolute necessity. Think about how you would introduce that person to a stranger. This is my friend who is a dispensationalist, but we also get along. Like That's not helpful. Why would you say that? Like, why would you even bring that up? Or maybe a better way to say it is, this is my brother in Christ, and I'm honored to be his friend. And the whole, you don't even address the whole theological difference that you have with them. A few days ago, a couple days ago, Naomi and I, my daughter and I, went to a daddy-daughter dance with her school. And there was, um, she goes to a, a Christian private school. There were guys there from all walks of life, all different churches, I'm sure. I, I, don't, I didn't know everybody in the room by any means. I'm confident that we didn't see eye-to-eye on politics or on masks or on racial issues and probably even big theological matters. There's probably a lot of disagreement in that room if we'd, if we'd sat down to figure it out. But how dishonoring to her school and to our daughters, not to mention unnecessary and unhelpful, would it have been if one of us had come in with an agenda to say, we're going to tear this place up and we're going to get into it and solve these issues. None of that came up because we were focused on making sure that our daughters had a good time, that we were unified in our purpose. And we had a great time. There are times where discussions can be, can be helpful, but that was not the time for it. We had a different purpose. We had a better purpose. So stay focused on our purpose, brothers and sisters. Stay focused on what unifies us and be eager to work toward our goal of peace and unity, like we've seen here in verses five and six. Finally, let's talk about our command, verse seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It says, welcome one another. There's both the strong and the weak then are to accept one another. This isn't just tolerance. It's, it's a warm welcome. It's choosing to honor a brother or sister over their opinions or convictions because Christ has welcomed both. That is the point. Because Christ has welcomed both. If God has welcomed us, how can we say that they don't meet our standards? Do we have a higher ethic than God? Is that what we're saying? There were some guys in the Bible who had a higher ethic than Jesus. They were called Pharisees, and just spoiler alert, they are never the good guys. They're never the good guys, mostly because they pick fights with Jesus. And if we know that God has saved someone, yet we let our preferences push them away, we're like those Pharisees in Mark 2 who scoffed at Jesus when he ate with sinners. We see that Jesus rebukes them, and he's saying that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. His point is that if you have higher standards than Jesus, and if you think you've got this all on your own, then you have no use for Jesus. And that is not a good place to be. But our unity as Christians is based on the fact that we all need Jesus. We all need his grace. And he has saved us. He's brought us into his kingdom and given us his righteousness. We're all on the same level ground at the foot of the cross. That is what unifies us as Christians. And he's welcomed us. So we ought to welcome one another in unity. That's what we can celebrate. That's how we can make much of Christ, even though we have differing opinions and convictions. And this unity is for the glory of God, the second half of verse 7 here. When we commune together and when we enjoy each other and celebrate each other, despite our differences, we bring glory to the God who welcomes us. There's there's lots of different metaphors for God's people throughout Scripture. There's a body. Think about different parts of your body. There's Bones and muscles and nerves and organ systems. They're all very, very different. Your, your, your humorous in your arm is not the same thing as your liver. That's very, very different purposes. But they are unified. They have the same purpose, right? Of being a body and living together and like accomplishing things, right? Going and getting brownies. That's a great purpose to work toward, right? Or there's also... A metaphor of a building. Think about the different aspects of a building. We're learning about that right now. We're trying to figure out this whole building thing. There's plumbing. There's electrical. There's HVAC. There's an envelope. There's walls and roof and all those kind of things. There's specialized spaces like bathrooms or offices or kitchens or this auditorium. All of them have a very, very different purpose. But they're all unified in the same facility. Our church body is a family. We have different personalities and different gifts different experiences. We're all very different, and yet we are still unified for the sake of making disciples. And God is building us up. We see this in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He's using, um, he's using us to sharpen each other and mature each other for mutual benefit. And we're growing together so we can bring glo- more glory to God as a unified church, and so we can make disciples. That is what God is doing in his body, in his church. So this command to welcome one another is really a focal point of everything that we've been talking about today. When we welcome one another, when we do this, we welcome each other for the glory of God. And we see peace and unity with other believers. And then we will follow the example of our Lord Jesus in Scripture. And we will be selfless servants. So brothers and sisters, as we wrap up, I hope you've seen today that the Christian life should be motivated by selfless sacrifice, sacrificial service in following the example of Jesus and in the instruction of the Scriptures for the sake of peace and unity among the body and for the glory of our God who has welcomed us.